Well, with that anthem fresh in your mind and your heart, I hope, we sang some pretty amazing words there. Let's just uh, stop and pray again before we dive into the message. So, oh, Lord God, oh, thank you for the privilege today of being together and being in your presence and being invited into your throne room, being invited to worship you, O King of kings and Lord of lords, mighty God, everlasting Father. Oh, Father God, we worship you, we praise you. Oh, Lord, hear our praises. And Lord, even if we're praising you today from a place of weakness or a place of struggle or even a place of doubt and desperation, Lord, I thank you that you invite us to come and worship you in all of our brokenness and in everything, Lord, you call us. And so, Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you will pour out over this room Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will just speak to and give hope to those who are desperately struggling today. And Lord, I pray that those who've been able to enter into that worship and rise above and praise you today, Lord, Lord, we know that we're not worthy, but Lord, we know that you are worthy. And Lord, you make us worthy. Thank you for that. Even as Chantelle shared, your love for us never fails. Nothing can separate us from your love. So, oh Lord, reveal by your spirit the truth of your promises today. Because, Lord, we all confess how much we need you. So, hear our worship. Speak into our lives today. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will take these feeble words of dawn and transform them into something that you can use to touch your people today. Oh, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill me and give me your words and your heart for this beautiful congregation called Bridgeway. And those guests with us today, Lord, that whoever you brought here today, oh, Spirit of God, speak to our hearts wherever we're at. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Pastor Darren said, we are going to talk about worship today. So we are in a series that we're, we've been calling Healthy Church, Biblical Church, and we've been looking at some of the foundational areas that make a church healthy. And I would suggest to you that a church that has healthy worship has biblical worship, and a church that has biblical worship should have healthy worship. And my hope and prayer for Bridgeway Community Church is that this area of worship in our lives and as we gather in community can be a beautiful thing. And I think as we worship together today in prayer and in music and, and other ways, it was awesome to worship with you. Now, in a little while, a bunch of you are going to leave this place and maybe go out for lunch together. And perhaps, at some of these lunch gatherings, someone might dare to ask the question, so, what did you think of worship today? Or, so, how was worship today? So here's my question. What does that question mean? Does that question mean, how was the worship service? Or does that question mean, how was the music today? How was the singing today? Now, maybe all of you would answer differently. Historically, when people would say, how was the worship, they would mean the worship service. We used to say years ago, we would say the worship, and that would mean the service. Whereas in more recent years, the worship often gets equated with music. So when people talk about worship, or how's the worship going, or what's the worship like in your church, or how was the, you know, they're, they're usually talking about music. Now, that is something that uh, gets said a lot and often said in a little bit of a derogatory way, I feel. Um, and yet, I certainly wouldn't want anyone to hear today that worship isn't a vital, vital, important part, or sorry, music isn't a vital and important part of worship. But I think that most of us, in some way or another, understand that worship is much, much more. And Darren introduced that a bit today. Worship is much, much more than music. But where do we go with this whole worship thing? Now, it's sad to me that um, over the last, well, 20 years plus, the church, and particularly the evangelical church, has been going through an era that many call the worship wars. And what a sad thing. Isn't it sad that for 20 years we've been fighting about worship? Now, I'm not saying Bridgeway necessarily, but I am, as someone who's been around the church block a few times, and especially the evangelical church world, sadly, I would have to say that for many, many reasons, there's been so many worship wars 
And what a, it just grieves my heart. Anyway, before I get super serious though, I have to show you the meme that's been floating around for a long time now, so probably a lot of you have seen it. Have you seen this before? These are the official worship signals. Now, if you, I'm sorry if it's a little too small for some of you to see, but you see some of the very ways that some of you probably joyfully mock me for doing when you see me worship in church. Because, you know, I'm really good at, um, where is it? Oh, carry the TV. Oh, yeah, that's one of my faves. Now, you probably can't see at the very bottom, it says expert, and then it says warning, Baptists do not attempt. If we were going to make it for us, it would say warning, Mennonites do not attempt. So, you know, I, I love, oh, village people, oh, Rocky's a good one. I don't do touchdown that often, but I admit I'm probably a bit of a village people worshiper. So anyway, I don't know how you feel when you see this. I know for most people, they get a chuckle and we laugh. Um, you know, there are some people, myself included, that have to be careful to not be a little bit offended because people who worship like I do can feel judged too, that people just mock you and think that, yeah, you're just being ridiculous if you do this kind of thing. And so it's just funny how we react so differently, and yet, yeah, I, you can laugh and have some fun with us. But wouldn't it, isn't it sad, though, also, that if this is what worship has been dumbed down to? Like, if, if, if when we think of worship, it's just, do you raise hands or do you not? Do you clap or do you not? Do you express yourself outwardly? Or are you an inward worshiper? Or yeah, some of those are true things, but anyway, enough of that. That was, that was supposed to be funny, but you guys have maybe seen it way too much around to know. So, if we're going to talk today about biblical worship, then obviously we need to go back to the scriptures and to the history of the church and find out what is the foundation of worship. Now, to go way back historically, really, ultimately what worship is all about is it's about submission to whoever the deity, God, or king, or ruler is. So, worship was just all about I submit to and give loyalty to and often in a forced and demanded way to whatever the God or deity is that my culture follows or whatever king or ruler that my culture has, I am demanded and commanded and have to worship. And worship means submission and worship means that Basically, you give everything to that ruler or that deity. That's, that's where the basic idea of worship comes from. So, if we go back to the Old Testament, which was written in the Hebrew language, the, word, the Hebrew words that get translated as worship are little, literally words like bend over, bow down, lay face down, prostrate. Because most of the words for worship in the Old Testament, again, have to do with being before, the God, before God or the gods or a king or a ruler, and you are basically, I know we mock it all the time now, the whole I'm not worthy thing, but that's really the picture. I'm not worthy. You're laying face down, hoping that you won't be killed or whatever, sentenced by the deity or by the king, and so worship is all about showing respect, showing honor prostrating yourself, literally bending down, bowing down. That's what, that's what the Old Testament words are. Probably one of the, the greatest images of this is the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah encounters God. And how Isaiah cries out, it's like, woe is me, I am ruined. And that's kind of the Old Testament idea, is that if you encounter God, if you encounter deity, you are in the presence of power and holiness, and you do nothing but worship, which again means get your face to the ground, get down, and show respect and honor to this God or to this deity or whatever you needed to worship. So that, that's much of the picture of the Old Testament of what worship's all about. Now, if we go to the New Testament, the New Testament is written in Greek, and most of those words that get translated English as worship, those words also mean things like pay homage or revere or adore. So there's still that idea of worshiping a deity or worshiping a ruler or a king. But there's also some other words that actually could be translated serve. So the New Testament starts to bring out the idea that worship is also connected to serving. So, so think about that for a while, and we're going to come back to those words. But that, that's, a little, that's a little bit of the historic foundation of what worship is. Now, the New Testament 
would suggest to us, well, actually the Old too, but specifically the New Testament, would suggest to us that there's actually something about worship that makes it either acceptable or unacceptable. That there's actually, as a verse was even read this morning, there's actually true and proper worship. So if there's acceptable worship or true and proper worship, then I suppose the opposite would be the reality, right? What do you think about that? So take, take a look at these, at these verses that you see on the screen, just a couple examples that bring up this idea. So the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So it's quite a picture from the New Testament of worship, of God being a consuming fire. And so the idea of acceptable worship is understood as worship with reverence and awe. Hmm. In Romans, Romans chapter 12, that's the next verse you see there, and Chantel read this this morning already. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Hmm. So just from these two verses, we can ask some tough questions, right? Like, what's acceptable worship? What's true and proper worship? Hmm. I'm now going to give you the answer. You're all going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, too bad there wasn't just a simple, easy answer. So I'm now going to take us on a little bit of a journey that I hope within that journey we'll start to answer some of that question for you. So, where do we begin with this idea of worship? I've already talked about how the Hebrew words and the Greek words, were all, they all come back to the idea of worshiping that deity or worshiping that king or that ruler. So I would suggest to you that worship begins, or biblical worship specifically, begins with the idea that God is king. God is above every other God, and that that is the message of the Old Testament. Now think about it. Even listen to all the songs we heard this morning. Yahweh, which is God's name, is trying to reveal himself to his creation. And in ancient times, they had so many gods, like so many gods they could barely count them. And Yahweh comes along and says, wait, I am the one true God, worship me alone. And so through the Old Testament, God's trying to get the attention of individuals, and then he has a plan to get the attention of a nation that he wants to use as an example to the rest of the world. Uh, This is an example of a nation that follows the one true God, because God's agenda through all of the Old Testament is for people to understand that there is only one God, one true God, and that only Yahweh, only that one true God is worthy of worship. You see, when God gave the Ten Commandments, remember, the beginning commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing, no one, anyone or anything, no other gods before me. True worship is the understanding of God is king. Yahweh is king of kings and Lord of lords. There is no earthly king and there is no heavenly deity that competes or compares. True worship is getting that, understanding that, and approaching and living for God in that light. And that's, you could say, is might be the simplest way to understand the Old Testament. But I would suggest that it's the same in the New Testament. Now, just before we go there, I want to give you one of the a great example, and that would be many of the Psalms. If you want this to see this theme over and over again of who really is king, in spite of what culture says, in spite of what every other religion or what every other nation in the world would say, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, God is king. And it comes up in so many Psalms, but let's just read Psalm 95 to illustrate this. And the whole Psalm isn't on here. Sorry, go back to Psalm 95. Just one slide back there. There we go. So let's read. I'll read this. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. 
For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And, the hands form, and his hands formed the dry land. And now verse 6, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So again, one psalm of many and of many, many scriptures in the Old Testament that want to keep reminding the people over and over again of who is the true God, who is the true king. When God set up a nation, his plan was that he would be their king. And yet over time and through their own disobedience and through their own comparing themselves with other nations, they said, we want to have an earthly king. And if you know that story, that grieved the heart of God because he wanted that nation to be unique and for God to be their king. And yet, as people, we always want to have our worship go away from the one true God. And that, again, is a big part of the Old Testament story. And yet again, the foundation of worship is who really is the king. Now, I would suggest to you that this same theme carries on in the New Testament. And I would suggest to you that the New Testament is basically, the overall message would be, Jesus is king, not Caesar. You see, Jesus lived during the time of the Roman Empire. And the Roman emperors, or the Roman Caesars, not only did they see themselves as king of kings, but they saw themselves as deity. They saw themselves as gods and wanted the people to worship them. So when we read in Scripture, king of kings and lord of lords, we think that's a Christian idea. The Caesars, that was their line. Caesar is king of kings. Caesar is Lord of Lords. And so when the message of Jesus and the message of early Christianity came about, everything was about, no, Yahweh is king. Jesus is king, not Caesar. In fact, if you really want to understand Revelation, it's not really about divining the future. The theme of Revelation is a worship book with many, many throne room scenes. And you know what those throne room scenes are always about? Caesar isn't king. Jesus is king. The kingdom of Rome will fail mightily, but the kingdom of God will last forever. Jesus is king. He's the lamb who was slain. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. All of those throne room scenes where elders are laying on their faces and multitudes are worshiping, those are all scenes that people would have understood because that's what the Romans wanted for their, for their Caesars and their leadership and their way of life. And yet Yahweh, Jesus, is king. He's the one that's going to win and so is the kingdom of God. And that's what worship's all about. Jesus is king. Yahweh is king. That's where it all begins. So, with that foundation of who is king, and while there's so much implication, when we just think historically, it seems so easy and obvious. And yet, in our culture, absolutely everything wants to be worshipped. So much wants our time and our love and our devotion and our awe And all of that is worship. And Jesus keeps saying to us through his word and by his spirit, I am king. I am the only one worthy to be worshipped. That's where worship all starts from a biblical point of view. Now, I would next suggest to you that the best perspective on biblical worship comes from the very mouth of Jesus. And in this passage you see on the screen, John chapter 4. Now, just a little bit of context of John chapter 4. Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem um, to his home in the north, but he has to go through the country of Samaria. Samaria is full of people that the Jews hate. They're called Samaritans. And they are kind of like half-breeds because they're half-Jewish, but they've mingled and mixed in with Gentiles, so the Jews don't like them very much. And the Jews and the Gentiles and these Samaritans have been having worship wars for centuries. And I won't bore you with all of that history, but they really have been having worship wars for centuries. Because to the Jew, worship is completely centralized in Jerusalem at the temple. When they spoke and thought and understood worship, it was temple, God is in our temple, that's what worship's all about, going there. 
To the Samaritans, they worshipped on the holy mountain that the patriarchs worshipped at. And so, in a, in, from a biblical perspective, an ancient perspective, worship is very much about location. You worship at a place. And God resides in temples. God resides in places on mountains where he appears. And you need to go to those places to worship. That was the very common understanding. So, when Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman, and again, that was all scandalous, but that's another whole sermon. But he's talking to her, and they're actually having a worship debate. Because she's Samaritan, and she's saying, once she figures out who Jesus is, she has the big question like we all would. So give me the right answer, Messiah. What's the right answer? Where should we worship? And this is the answer that Jesus gives here in the scripture you see before you. So John chapter 4, beginning at verse 21, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem at the temple. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, if you've been brought up in church or you've been a Christian a long time, You've heard this text a million times, and you go, yeah, 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 whatever. Worship is spirit and truth. Good. Okay, move on to the next point. Can I plead with you to think about this more deeply and to think about how radical of a statement that Jesus is making in the context of his culture? Jesus is living in a time when that beautiful temple built by Herod is standing in Jerusalem. And they are so proud of the fact that we are the people of God, we have the temple. We are the ones that are the center of worship. All worship of Almighty God happens through us at our temple. That's what it's all about. And now Jesus, fully knowing that in less than 70 years, the Romans are going to destroy that temple that will never be rebuilt to this day. And yet Jesus says worship is going to completely change. He says it's actually changing right now, but it's going to completely change. We live in an era of radically different worship than the ancients would have even had a clue about. And yet we just kind of go, yeah, whatever. Maybe we go to church and sing some songs and do some worship. I just want to have you get the magnitude of what Jesus is trying to say here. Because Jesus is saying true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. So what does that look like? So when when Jesus says that we're going to worship in the Spirit, the miracle of that is is that all that Jesus is going to do is going to mean that God is going to go from being outside of us to God being inside of us. That when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit is going to fill believers in Jesus so that God is no longer out there to be sought, but God is within So when we worship in spirit, it's the miracle of we're not searching for God anymore. God is in our spirit. We are spirit beings filled with the spirit of God. And so at any moment that we acknowledge his presence, it's like worship. We worship in spirit, understanding the very mighty presence of God within us. And Jesus says, so you're going to worship in spirit, but also in truth. And he talks about how the Jews understood because they had the word of God. They had the revelation of God. So worship that's connected in truth is worship that is connected to the truth of Scripture, to the truth of the revelation of how God has revealed himself in creation and through his word, and that we stand on that truth. So Jesus is saying, when we get spirit and truth, that's going to be true worshipers. That's what we're invited into in worship. So when we talk about appropriate worship, it's getting this balance of spirit and truth. So if we have worship that overemphasizes one or the other or neglects one or the other, what does that look like? So, for example, if you have worship that is full of spirit, full of life, but lacking in truth, that can lead to emotionalism. 
not true worship, but emotional expressions that may or not be worshipful. On the other side, what about worship that's full of truth but has no spirit, has no life to it, has no intimacy to it? Well, that kind of worship can lead to legalism. So in our worship, if we want to learn to worship acceptably, it's avoiding the worship that leads to emotionalism or the worship that leads to legalism. Neither one Jesus had in mind. Now, I don't know what, what your journey has been with this. I just, just thought of a few, few stories in my life. Well, well, I'll tell this one first. So years ago, it was quite common for young adults from evangelical churches to, when rather than go to the traditional Bible schools, there was this era where so many young adults wanted to go on something called YWAM. Anybody know what I'm talking about? YWAM stands for Youth with a Mission. And there were YWAM bases all over the world. There still are many, but that whole YWAM movement isn't quite as big as it was, say, 10 years ago. Now, if you've never heard of this, bear with my story, but I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to give you context. But YWAM was this very, actually, loose organization. They didn't really have much accountability or any head office. There was just these random YWAM bases all over the world. And so they were very attractive for young adults to go to in order to... Um, have this missions and Bible school type experience. Now, the reason that YWAMs were quite controversial in, in more conservative evangelical churches is that YWAMs were generally very charismatic. And so you would get these conservative kids going across the world on a YWAM, and they're being taught about being filled with the Spirit and spiritual gifts and prophecy and just all this charismatic kind of stuff, and it was quite a fascinating era. And I would have to say to you that... Uh, in my experience as a youth and young adults pastor during a lot of those years, I saw kids come back who were just completely transformed and were never the same again, and it was an amazing work of the Spirit in their life. But I also saw other kids come back that were just completely messed up and chucked their faith. It was, just, it was a very interesting season. Anyway, a long explanation to get to my little story. So I was, I was visiting with one of these YWAM base leaders one time and just kind of explaining to him a little bit of my dilemma as a as a uh, young adults pastor from a more, the more conservative side of the church. And we were discussing this, and he asked me about my denominational background. I said, yeah, well, I've mostly served in either Mennonite or Baptist-type churches. Oh, and he gets a big smile on his face. And he says, you know what? He says, I love it when you guys send us your kids. He says, because you know what? You bapto Menno people, your kids are so grounded in the word, which is awesome. And you know what? When I get those kids that are grounded in the Word and then they get filled with the Spirit, it's amazing. Like, and, and he just went on and on about how when he gets these conservative kids that are grounded in the Word and they're filled with the Spirit, they are the most amazing on-fire-for-Jesus missionaries. And anyway, I've always remembered that because for me it was just a little illustration of how the beauty of when Word or when truth and Spirit can come together and how powerful that can be. Anyway, that's one way I, one way I think of it. Now, I talked a little bit about how spirit and truth, how worship that is void of truth can sometimes lead to more of an emotionalism type of experience than true worship. So, another, another story from years ago in the worship war era. So, back in the 90s, I know, you guys love the ancient history of the 90s. Oh, the 80s was the... Anyway, back, okay, back in the 90s, there was a spirit movement at that time that wasn't really connected to the charismatic world, but it was called the Vineyard Movement. I don't know if anyone remembers hearing about the Vineyard Movement. It was kind of a thing in the 90s. And this Vineyard Movement um, had quite an impact, again, on the evangelical church, especially the conservative ones, because it was kind of like cool, interesting Holy Spirit stuff, but not necessarily having to be charismatic or Pentecostal, if that makes any sense to you. But anyway... So, one of the highlights of this vineyard movement for me personally was it really changed worship for me. In fact, in the 90s, through a lot of the influence of, of the vineyard movement and what became known later as vineyard worship, um, this whole thing of worship teams and different type of music and all of that was kind of the result of that movement. So, for some of you, that's like, that's where it all went bad, or for some of you, it was like, maybe that's where it all went good. Depends on your perspective, right? Well, anyway, in... BC, at Abbotsford area, there was a young Mennonite guy named Brian Dirksen. He's not that young anymore. 
that got to be a part of this movement and became a very, very influential worship leader and worship songwriter. And you've probably seen and sung his songs even if you don't recognize the name because he was, it was very popular during the 90s and the early 2000s. So anyway, again, way too much history just to tell you my little story. So I'm living in Calgary at the time. It's the mid-90s, and I'm just completely into this vineyard movement stuff, and it's, it's, it's a really awesome, on-fire-for-Jesus time of life for me. So anyway, I hear that Brian Dirksen and his band are coming to Calgary. So I'm pumped, big group of people from our church, and so I remember going to this auditorium where there's probably a couple thousand people packed into this place, and we're all excited because Brian Dirksen's new CD that year was called Light the Fire. I don't know if anyone remembers it. And we would all be singing, Light the fire again. Don't let my heart grow cold. I'm crying out. Light the fire again. And the song was pumping, and, and it really did express the truth of our heart. But anyway, it was, it was that era. So I'm in this room with a couple thousand people, and they just do the biggest, like, rock version of Light the Fire again. And we're just all going nuts in there, right? It was awesome. So anyway... At the, end, at the end of the song, the room is just electric, right? And all of a sudden, this chant starts, and everyone starts going, yes, 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 yes. And it, and it, it started to feel really weird. Like, you know, even though I was into it, but at this point, I'm going, okay, this is getting a little weird for me now. So the worship leader, who was this Brian Dirksen guy, I'll never forget this. It was a life-changing moment for me. He's standing at the mic at the end of the song, and I could tell... He's trying to read the room and read the spirit and say, what's going on here? And I remember that he said this. He said, you know, when we say yes to Jesus, he usually leads us to the cross. As soon as he said that, it was just like instant silence in the room. Instant silence. And I'll never forget that moment because that was a correction moment for me and maybe many others of what I'm trying to illustrate. That there can be a point where emotionalism, when we get hyped and all of that in a form or a style of worship, that if it's not based on truth, we just need to be careful. And I just really respected that worship leader for sensing that we'd crossed the line and brought us back to the truth of Jesus and his word. And it impacted me as a worship leader ever since that. Anyway. That's kind of my example from that world. However, the reason that I became that guy that was even at that conference was because I grew up in a church that often, to me, and again, I'm not judging it, but to me, it felt that there was a lack of life and that there was a lot of legalism. And I did not want to be a part of a Christianity that was about legalism and lifeless showing up and doing church and there being no power and energy and and so I spent a big part of my life kind of fighting that too. But, again, I'm trying to illustrate for you spirit and truth. We need to find the balance that Jesus talked about in order to truly worship biblically. Because worship, without, worship in the extremes is never good. But when spirit and truth come together, it can be so beautiful. You know, Jesus had to address this, and uh, one time when he was talking to a group of Pharisees, and their legalism just got to him to the point where he said these words in Matthew 15. He's actually quoting Isaiah, but in Matthew 15 he says, and he's, he's quoting and he says to them, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And so Jesus, too, saw the lifeless worship and the lifeless practice of legalism and said, that's not what I came for. He came to release spirit and truth worship. And I encourage us on, on that journey as well. All right, speed up here. I'm editing on the fly now. This is too much of a dawn turning into a teacher, teacher moment on worship. All right, well, we, we talked about Romans uh, 12 before, and uh, I wanted to talk a little, so I've been talking about the heart posture of worship, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the body posture of worship. 
And if you remember that, that Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, it's interesting how this verse calls us as true worshipers to offer our bodies. Now, normally when we think of worship, we think of offering our lives, offering our hearts, offering our wills. Like, we're very familiar with that kind of language, but when we think of offering our bodies to God in a, in a way of worship, now, I don't want to suggest to you that the examples of postures you see there is the complete definition of what's happening in this verse. It's much deeper than that. But I do want to suggest to you that part of, the post, part of us offering our bodies in worship is our, is our physical posture in worship. I'm not saying that's the thing or the most important thing, but I'm saying it's a part of it. And so just looking through Old and New Testament scriptures, the words you see there come up over and over again of the type of posture that worshipers had, right? Standing, kneeling, bowing heads, raising heads, lifting hands, and dancing. We're all scriptural body posture ways of worshiping. Hmm. So, so with that in mind, the story that I can't help but thinking about any time I preach on worship is the story of King David. King David dancing before the Lord. Now, most of you have probably read the story, maybe some of you haven't. There's a whole long explanation that I'll try not to get into, but basically David is leading a worship procession into the city of Jerusalem. There's, a, there's a, this artifact called the Ark of the Covenant. I won't get into explaining all that. But he's leading this artifact into Jerusalem, and it's a huge moment of worship for David. So that's all you need to know the context, but here's what it says in 2 Samuel 6. It says, wearing a linen ephod, which means that David had taken off his kingly royal robes and was basically down to his underwear in a sense, or wearing a small, yeah, anyway. He wasn't in his full kingly robes is the point. So wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets, it was just a very quiet and serene worship celebration, as you can see from the scripture here. Anyway, you can laugh at that. Anyway, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, who also was David's wife at this point, watched from the window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So, I could unpack this story all over the place, I won't. I just have one question for us today. Do we look at each other as fellow worshipers and despise each other? Hmm. I had to ask this question anew in my heart. Now some of you see me up front here worshiping um, and you see me raise my hands and do things like that. And I've been around people in circles that are very, very expressive worshipers. And I've heard them talk about those people who sit there like this and won't sing and look bored and look like they're just judging all the time. And how can they be worshiping? And, they, and I've been in many of those conversations. I've also been in conversations with people who mock and just think people who worship by raising their hands are just absolutely stupid and ridiculous and a bunch of emotional people who have no clue about what true and real biblical worship is and have these smart biblical people go, oh, those people, they are just completely unbiblical and they do not understand what true worship is and they are just a bunch of emotional, overdoing it people that are ridiculous. I, I've been in those conversations too. I guess what I want to encourage us, can I plead with you, Bridgeway Church and friends with us today? Let's be followers of Jesus that are like David and not like Michael. Now, I'm not saying that you all need to be dancers. No, I'm not saying that at all. But can I plead with us? Let's not be Michaels. No matter how much you may not relate to or like or even respect how someone else worships. 
can I ask you not to judge them in your heart, not to despise them, or to think you can even guess what's going on in their heart. I know I've had to confess that to the Lord. Because as you can tell, I probably would love to encourage all of you to be more exorbitant in your worship. But it's a sin if I look at you and judge your heart because you just maybe don't look outwardly because I don't know what's going on in your heart. So if you've ever felt that judgment from me or someone like me, can I just speak on their behalf? I'm sorry. Forgive us. It's wrong for us to work to judge your heart based on your outward expression. But let me ask, let's not be Michaels. That's all I'm going to say about that story. <laughs> all right, so I've talked a bit, I've talked about the most important in terms of heart posture and worship. Talked just a real little bit about the body posture and worship. I think they're both important and very biblical. There's also what I would call the family posture and worship. And what I mean by that is worship, biblical worship is corporate worship. Now, there's a bunch of teaching here that I'm going to avoid getting into now, but let me just read you this quote from a, a book called The Worship Architect. It says, Christian worship, especially Western Christian worship, has been subject to radical individualism. Corporate worship is what happens when the body of Christ assembles to hear with one heart and speak with one voice the words, praises, prayers, petitions, and thanks fitting to Christian worship. I think one of the, another danger in worship is for us to too much think that worship is just completely an individual thing. That I just worship God in my own heart and in my own little way and that that's what's important. Going to church, worshiping with other people, ah, that's okay, I'll do that but that's less important. I think if we're going to understand worship biblically, there's always a corporate nature to worship. Again, that doesn't mean that there isn't an individual part of worship, but worship biblically and scripturally, Old Testament and New Testament, is corporate worship. It's God's people coming together to declare the word, to declare praises, to declare prayer, and there's great importance and power in corporate worship. It's all through Scripture. Now, those statements that you see at the top of the screen, this is more from sort of my theology of worship studies, and there's much more I could say about this, but these are basically just three simple statements of what you could say biblical worship is. That biblical worship, again, old and new, it's always centered in God's acts of salvation. Biblical worship is patterned by revelation and response. And what I mean by that is that God is revealed and people respond. And it's the, res it's the response to God's revelation that is the worship. That's a picture of biblical worship. And then below, worship is covenantal, meaning that there's a relationship and a covenant made between God and his people. And that relates to wor worship being corporate. So all of that could be one whole sermon but I'll just, just leave that, that thought with you. So, with all of this kind of random journey <laughs> that I've taken you on today, I hope you've been able to stay with me. This is how I, I want to conclude and have us respond today. One more, little, one more little story from Scripture. John chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. It says this, Six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And if you keep reading this story, Judas, who was the treasurer, was very angry because he thought that that was a big waste of money. And yet Jesus said that it was acceptable worship. So I wanted to conclude with this little story because I want you to see just in this little encounter the different types of worship that's going on by different people. 
Now, this was a bill held in Jesus' honor, which I would suggest to you is a worship event. At this worship event, Martha served. At this worship event, Lazarus says he reclined. I'm saying Lazarus rested in the assurance of Jesus' presence. And Mary did an act of extravagant worship. Now here's what I want to suggest to you from this little story. I think all three of these people worshipped acceptably and worshipped in spirit and truth. Because they worshipped in the way that God created them and in the way God called and led them to worship. You know, I believe in this room today there are many of you who are Marthas. Your primary way of worshiping God is you serve him. And that may look many, many different ways, but your act of worship, your sacrifice of praise, it comes through your serving. And I would say to you today that if that's how God has made you and wired you and gifted you, bless you. Keep worshiping him that way. I think there's some of you who worship like Lazarus. Because of what God has done in your life, you have a rest and a peace in, his, in that faith and resting and being in his presence. Maybe for some of you that looks like being out in nature and worshiping God in that kind of a setting. Or maybe it's just the quietness of being with the scriptures or being walking in prayer. Maybe some of you are Lazarus-type worshipers. And then maybe there's some of you that are Mary worshipers. You're often led to more exuberant or extravagant ways that you may worship. In fact, this may apply to some of you who, who give really sacrificially, give financially very sacrificially, and no one knows. Only God sees that beautiful, extravagant worship, and it's huge to him, even if no one else sees. God bless you if that's you. It's not just the other kind of extravagance, we think, that you may think I'm meaning, although I think that's there too. And I think God loves that kind of extravagant worship too. So, I want to encourage you with that today. But here's my response challenge for you today. Number one, I want you to rest in how God has wired you and how God has gifted you. And be that kind of worshiper. Be the Martha, be the Lazarus, or be the Mary. And know that your father is well pleased. And continue to be that kind of worshiper. Rest in how he has made you and created you. So that's challenge number one. And then challenge number two is the word risk. And I want to challenge you to risk to expand how you worship. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you where he wants you to risk to expand in your relationship and in your worship of your creator. And you know, maybe for some of you, it's gonna be, it's gonna be going to the quiet side, the meditative side, the spending more time alone with God side. That may be what he's calling you to do. Maybe for some of you, it is going to be more of an extravagant call. It's going to be take a risk. And even if everything in you feels funny or weird to be more expressive in your worship, if that's a good thing because it pleases God and allows you to enter in more, why not forget about thinking what other people are going to think? Who cares? How about just take a risk and worship more extravagantly? And maybe for some of us, the Spirit is going to say, I need you to serve me more. 
yeah, I know you love me. I know you read my word. I know you try to be faithful. But, I want, but maybe the Holy Spirit is leading you to, to serve more and to show your worship and devotion by acts of service. It's all worship. And when we do it in spirit and truth, it's acceptable and it's pleasing unto God. So I'm just going to leave a, a moment of silence. And by the way, silence is another form of worship. And just give you an opportunity to uh, listen to the Spirit. And ask the Spirit, show me where I need to rest and show me where I need to risk. So Holy Spirit, speak to us. Let's spend a moment in quiet. Ask the worship team if they'll, they'll come and join me up here. Let me pray. Oh, Spirit of God, I just ask that you will just continue to move among us and continue to speak as we listen. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will give courage to those you are calling to rest, and I pray that you will give courage to those you are calling to risk. Oh, Lord, I pray that Bridgeway Community Church will be a people who worship you, Jesus, in spirit and in truth. May you transform our worship to honor you and to bless each other. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.